Catherine, remind me how much you traveled in 2019. I traveled 266 days out of that year to something like 21 different international destinations. And for 2020? A whole lot less. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and that's inspired both of us, I think, to spend more time learning about the place where we both live, Los Angeles. Definitely, including an afternoon we spent clambering around one of the city's most recognizable features. We are wending our way through these little canyons at the top of the hills, past bikers and hikers and even a family out for a walk with their dog. These are some of the most spectacular views of the city. I've ever seen, as well as some of the bumpiest roads I've been on. And now that I've crossed to the other side of the divide, I'm looking over the valley. It really is spectacular up here. And now that we've gotten a little bit away from the hiking trails of Griffith Park, it looks like we should have the sign all to ourselves. We parked our cars off the side of the road and walked a little further up the hill. And now we're looking down at the Hollywood sign itself and pretty much the rest of LA. Now this is a climber's knot, so it's not gonna slip. And I like to lean back. I find mm -hmm. it a lot easier to just sort of lean back and do one hand over the other and walk yourself down. Right, and the reason Jesse is rappelling down the hillside is because it's quite steep. <laughs> it's steep and there's Very loose steep. rock and then this grass that dries out mm -hmm. um, falls off or gets cut and then it's even more slippery. So it's important. Take it slowly, especially if you're pregnant. Right, <laughs> Catherine. <laughs> and now we're crunching down this little path, wending between the H and the O. The ladies are a little ahead of me. What is your favorite of the letters, Jesse, and why? I like the H. Oh, why? Yeah. You know, I love the view of it as you come down that very steep hill mm. that we just did. Mm -hmm. You can look through the letters Hello, and welcome to Conscious Traveler. I'm Eric Rosen, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Catherine Remine. We're two travel writers, and Conscious Traveler is our podcast celebrating sustainability, conservation, culture, and community around the world. By sharing our stories and those of fascinating experts, we aim to help you make your next adventure more meaningful and memorable. Eric, before we visited the Hollywood sign in November, had you ever been up there before? Nope. You? No. And I think, like a lot of people, I've spent more time traveling to some of the world's far-flung corners than exploring the various parts of Los Angeles, even though I've lived here for more than 14 years. I'm ashamed to say the same. Time-wise, I thought nothing of hopping on a jet for Australia or Europe, but I would balk at driving 60 minutes across L.A. for an event. But I'm also firmly a believer in the fact that you have to know your own backyard if you hope to have any perspective on travel writing about other places. I agree, and that's why I think we both looked at the coronavirus lockdowns as a chance to get to know our city even better. So much so that we decided to do an entire episode on some of the more hidden parts of L.A. that even people who grew up here might not know about. We started with what is probably the city's most iconic landmark, the Hollywood sign. New York has the Empire State Building, Paris has the Eiffel Tower, Egypt has the pyramids. But what is it about a simple white sign that has made it such an enduring symbol? For answers to those questions and a few fun facts thrown in, we turn to Diana Wright, a spokesperson for the Hollywood Sign Trust. So, Diana, I guess the basic question is, why is there a big sign in the hills above Los Angeles that says Hollywood in bright white letters? <laughs> well, I mean, true to form, the Hollywood Sign came out to L.A., with a dream to promote real estate and became famous all on its own. So it was originally built in 1923 as 
just a giant billboard to promote this housing development, which was called Hollywood Land. And it was a time when giant billboards were very popular. So it wasn't even all that special because driving had just taken over. So people wanted these like big, distracting billboards that you're going to see from your car and be like, what is that? And so it's just this giant light up sign and it flashed Hollywood land. Really? And it had a big white dot underneath it that would draw your eye up. I had no idea it flashed or lit up. It did. Yeah. At the time when it was originally built, it did light up and it flashed. It wasn't all just lit up all at once. It was, it was flashing. How high tech at the time. <laughs> <laughs> it was built by donkeys and mules and things. So it was very high tech for the time. Wow. <laughs> When did the land part get taken off? So the land part was removed in the 40s. So at that time, the real estate development had gone bankrupt. The sign was just sitting sort of uh, to the elements. And they were like, okay, do we remove this sign completely or do we rebuild it? And the city basically decided that they were going to remove the land, rebuild the H, and make it just a Hollywood sign. So interesting. Oh, okay, so they took off the like the land part of it because where would that have even like gone around the hill it's sort of hard to picture it when you're up there i would say i mean it would just extend off the uh mountainside a little bit more and do a little bit more of a wraparound but yeah they just removed it because at that point they were like well we are the city of hollywood so we can remove this and rebrand it as the hollywood sign huh so we've been talking about this. You know, the Hollywood sign is such a symbol of Los Angeles. It's like the Eiffel Tower in Paris, or people think of the Statue of Liberty or the Empire State Building in New York. But unlike those structures, which are pieces of architecture, this doesn't really have a day-to-day -day purpose. Tourists can't go visit. You can't line up to go take a tour. So why do you think this has become such a landmark in LA? Like the lasting power that it has too. You know, I think Los Angeles is a city that's meant to disguise itself as other cities. We used it as a filming location so that there are streets in downtown LA that look like New York. There are areas in the hillsides that, that mask for Vietnam and Korea and like all these places where they've been filming to fake other places because um, that's what Los Angeles does. We make movie magic. And I think there's that desire to have that I have arrived moment. They want that picture for the Instagram that says I'm here in Los Angeles. And there really isn't anything that screams Los Angeles as much as the Hollywood sign. And so it is that identifiable marker, uh, just like the Las Vegas sign in Las Vegas, you know, things like that. Things that you take a picture of it and people instantly know where you are and it's you have arrived. Other than that, it's really just, you know, palm trees, but there are palm trees in other places. <laughs> That's true. It's sort of like the Beverly Hills sign has become so iconic too. But what you just said reminds me of one of, you know, Dorothy Parker's famous bon mot about Los Angeles, which is that Los Angeles was 72 suburbs in search of a city. And I think what you say makes a lot of sense in that there is no moment when you're like, oh, I'm here in Los Angeles and the sign provide something like that. What you also said, though, was that everyone wants that Instagram shot or that photo of them with it in the background. So it has become a quasi tourist attraction. But it's also up in the hills above a neighborhood. It's on, you know, public land and stuff. What are some of the issues that the Hollywood Sign Trust has to address as a result of people's interest in the sign and wanting to be near it? The Hollywood sign is a very interesting landmark because it became a landmark over time. And really, it's become in the last 30 years, it's become the tourist destination that it is 
today. I, people used to just sort of interact with it. You would see it and you wouldn't necessarily need to get that close up shot. You'd see it and it would make you smile. And so unfortunately, it wasn't built with the infrastructure that the Eiffel Tower, that Mount Rushmore, any of these sites have, which would have parking and a viewing point and a ranger station and bathrooms and all these things built into it to say, like, you're going to have this experience and we're going to lead you through it. And it's going to be safe and we're going to be able to handle those. Uh, right. It's organized. People. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, the, I mean, the sign sits on a mountainside. It's in Griffith Park, in an area where animals tend to roam freely. And it's, yeah, it's also in a neighborhood. And so the issue has become people really coming to get to the sign and wanting to have that experience and really having no place to go. And so as the Hollywood Sign Trust, we've been working really hard with the city to try to create a place where people can go and have an accessible, safe area where they can get that picture and and feel satisfied and experience the sign, you know, in their own way without overwhelming the neighborhood or causing a brush fire or anything like that. Right, because when we were driving up there, I mean, the roads are super narrow. There's multiple signs broadcasting the fact that there is no public access. And then the way down is extremely steep and treacherous. And (laughs) I know people try to sneak in. And then we even heard someone from a distance, you know, over the loudspeaker, kind of reminding them of the fine that you would get if you do Mm -hmm. kind of break into the area. So I imagine there are probably a lot of people who try, but it's good to remember that it is illegal Right. Yeah. So it is illegal to access the sign. So the closest you can get to it is above and behind it, which gives you a beautiful shot of the city. And you can also get a great shot below the sign. And I think the important thing to remember is these are giant white letters. They are 45 feet tall. And so often people start climbing up to them because they're like, oh, those don't seem that far away. And I think I can access them. And then uh-huh. <laughs> what they don't realize is how big they are and how deceiving that landscape can be. So then they're walking through these areas that are that are restricted to the public. And really, there's a lot of dangerous things that can happen to them, including us having security on the sign. And we do have two police officers stationed there 24-7, making sure that the sign is safe and, and no one is accessing that. But I think, yeah, until you really go and see where the sign is, you don't quite realize how exactly treacherous it is and and how precarious it's just perched onto that hillside. And one thing that I love to talk about is that I think, you know, you should experience the sign with a hike because that is also something that is so true to LA. And it gives you this beautiful vista of the city. And Los Angeles is this vast sprawling city that has no city center. And so sometimes you just need to get up high and look at it from above just to really take in its beauty. It's true. The sign itself was, you know, very spectacular when we were up there, but the views were just phenomenal. You get a picture of the entire Los Angeles basin on one side, and then you round the hill and you see the entire valley on the other side. So if there's one thing, it does give you a sense of place. I was also wondering... Obviously, the sign continues to generate interest in Los Angeles and Hollywood and the sort of shorthand for a dream-making city or experience. But the image of the sign, we noticed while we were up there, the sign, you forget, isn't just a row of letters. It's built into the landscape a little bit. And so some letters are a little forward, some are a little back. They don't, you know, line up vertically in the same way. That image is licensed, right, for people who want to use it. And I was wondering if you could talk about that and then also talk about how the Hollywood Sign Trust 
balances the commercial interests of keeping the sign, you know, intact, looking good as that shining symbol without cheapening it in some way. Yes, the Hollywood sign has an interesting typography. So it's actually very specific to the sign and it's built because that's how the mountainside was shaped. So it became this staggered looking sign because that's what the mountain looked like. They didn't level off the area. So it's been created into this uh, image and the image itself to use it in film or commercial or an advertisement is licensed. So you, you do need to get licensing rights for it. And that money then goes to protect both the sign itself and goes to promote and protect the city of Hollywood as well. For us as the trust, it's also we want to protect its image. So one thing that we specifically haven't done with the sign, except for a few rare instances, is physically alter it. For the millennia, the 2000 New Year celebration, we did put lights on the sign and created a light show for it. It has not been lit since then. And then we did it for the 2009 Trust for Public Land account. And so that was when the land to, if you're looking up at the sign, to the left of the H was up for sale. And we worked with the city and the Trust for Public Land to cover the sign to say, save the peak. And that's Mm. Really the only few times we have physically altered the sign in recent memory. And those are very specific conservational reasons. Mm-hmm. Previous to these conversations we've had in visiting it, I didn't really know a lot about the sign, to be honest. And I think a lot of other people, both Angelinos and also tourists, don't know about the history and all of that. So what are a few of the sort of fun facts or behind the scenes secrets that you think are interesting to know about the sign? And if I might add on to that, the sign has not always been a foregone conclusion here in Los Angeles. It's almost been removed a couple times, right, or gone into severe disrepair and its future was uncertain. So, like, let us know some of the vicissitudes and what it took to become (laughs) what it is today. Absolutely. I mean, during the 70s, the sign was in absolute disrepair. And that was the second time the city was very much considering, all right, should we just tear this thing down? And it was actually Hugh Hefner who stepped in to run the Save the Sign campaign and really took charge of raising the money. He threw this star-studded gala and auctioned off the letters to the sign. And celebrities like Alice Cooper came in, Gene Autry. I mean, all of these L.A. icons Mm -hmm. came in and stepped up and saved the sign. And then they completely rebuilt the sign. So actually, at that point, it was uh, 1978, they took down the sign completely and rebuilt it to the sign that you see today. So originally the sign was built with telephone poles and these small squares of tin that would pop out and it would kind of make the sign look like a little bit of like a jack-o'-lantern. <laughs> or like because... it got punched in the mouth or something like that. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah. It was like, it's like those arcade games where next carnival games. So those were kept getting replaced. And so then they replaced it completely with the corrugated steel that we have today, which are these large sheets. So we haven't had any of those issues of like small pop out things. So that was the major time when it was like, okay, the sign might not exist. And the city really stepped up and said, no, we want the sign and we're going to recreate it. You know, knock on wood, the sign has really withheld since that rebuild. But also something happened again, like you just mentioned in what, 2008 or so, where really they had to make a big push to conserve the land around it because someone was thinking of developing some housing there, right? And it brought the Hollywood community together again. Do you think these sort of like renewals of interest in it are part of what has made it endure? Yeah, I think people 
really want that pristine Hollywood sign look as much as I think the neighbors obviously are frustrated with the crowds coming in, which is very understandable. I think it's the type of thing where the city of Los Angeles would feel terrible if the sign went away. Because it is that moment of like, you see it, you can see it from the the 10 freeway. Yeah, from all over the city. That's right. Yeah, Yeah. no matter how long you live here, you still kind of get something out of it. Exactly. I think everyone has a personal relationship with it. I mean, I grew up in Los Angeles. And it's been interesting coming from this sort of idea of like, oh, like, there's the sign, it just exists to now knowing all the inner workings of how to keep the sign (laughs) up together. And it's just, it really makes you appreciate all the work that I think the city of Los Angeles does to maintain these icons. It's so important, especially in a city known for what's new now, next and change so often. I was just thinking, Catherine, I don't know if you're the same way, but up until this year, you know, I was on airplanes quite a lot. And whenever I had a flight into LA, I made an effort to be in the window seat on the right side of the plane because I knew, according to the flight path, that I would fly past downtown, see those letters, you know, fly over the rest of the city and land. And it was uh, just a little ritual that would let me know that I was back home. I obviously haven't been on a plane in a while, but <laughs> it's still nice to be able to see the sign when I'm driving around the city because it does give me a sense of being where I belong. That's very sweet. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time today, Diana. This was really intriguing, as was our experience at the sign itself. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Looking out over Los Angeles from the Hollywood sign gave me an unmistakable sense of just how truly vast and diverse the city is and how many facets of it there are to discover. It's also one of the most remarkable examples of historic preservation in L.A., though if you look carefully, you can find many more throughout the city. It's true. In a town that's as image-obsessed as Los Angeles, people are often looking for what's new and what's next, but doing so actually risks ignoring the city's impressive architectural heritage, which spans centuries from its founding in the 1700s all the way to the present moment. Even a quick walk around our neighborhood of West Hollywood reveals Art Deco gems hiding in plain sight, not to mention landmarks of other bygone eras, all of which are easy to zoom past without even noticing. To help us figure out what to look for and share a few specific ideas for sightseeing right here in our own area, we spoke to our fellow journalist Jessica Ritz, who regularly contributes to Architectural Digest, Metropolis, and the LA Times on architecture, design, and LA's unique blend of building styles. Jessica has also been a historic preservation planner at a Hollywood-based consulting firm. So, Jessica, L.A. actually has a pretty distinguished history of architecture and design. What do you think some of the facets of the city's architectural history are that might surprise people? Well, we actually have the largest concentration of historic movie theaters in downtown L.A. and the Broadway Historic Theater District, you know, which also ties into the history of the entertainment industry here. But you really see almost every style represented from like Beaux-Arts to sort of exotic revival styles, like the Mayan Theater or the United Artists Theater, which is now the Ace. So right there, that's like a snapshot of all kinds of period revival styles that were popular in the 1920s through the 30s. What are some of the other ones? Yeah, there's the Mayan and the Los Angeles Theater. And, you know, the Orpheum has been updated into a beautiful live music venue. And also there was this one architect who was kind of the main guy as Charles Lee, but there were also a bunch of other leading architecture firms that contributed to that district. Another thing which I always think is so interesting is just how LA is this really unusual confluence of technology. So we had the aerospace industry here was huge after World War II, which hugely developed the economy and helped also develop things like the template for 
suburbs. And also that inspired architects like Frank Gehry and even earlier modernists before him who really embraced using these experimental materials that were easily mass produced. So there was a sort of dovetailing of other technologies and architecture and design that really has created all kinds of buildings that might not look extraordinary, but tell a lot of history about architecture and industry and design and technology. And and that still continues to inspire architects to this day. Also, we have five architecture schools in LA. Let's see, there's UCLA, USC, SciArc, Woodbury, and Poly Pomona. Wow, that's a pretty big concentration. We must be turning out quite a few young designers Exactly. My husband being one of them. Oh, yeah? Okay. <laughs> he did his master's at SciArc and taught at Woodbury, too. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, so it's a great training ground for architects and designers and that also goes along with the huge interior design industry that we have here. I wonder also, and set design, obviously, and building and stuff with the entertainment industry. It's interesting. I sort of hadn't thought about the interconnections between them and technological firms like what Northrop Grumman and, you know, even the JPL over at Caltech yeah, and exactly. stuff like that must all be sort of contributing to this rise of new designs mm-hmm. and materials. How interesting. Absolutely. So, Jessica, I know you grew up in L.A. How did you first get interested in architecture in L.A. architecture specifically, were there particular periods that sort of first struck your fancy or fascinated you? I guess I was just kind of a curious nerd as a kid. And I do have memories of certain experiences in certain buildings or places that are very unique to L.A. Like, I remember going to this weird modern house that was very sort of minimalist in its architecture, but the inside, the owners had like elephant tusks and all kinds of collections and their travels around the world. Turned out we were visiting my parents' friends who were here from out of town, and they were staying at their friend Michael Crichton's house, designed by Richard Neutra. No way. Ah. (laughs) Emily learned later on, but I'm like, oh, huh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Interesting. That was just one day, but it really sort of made an impression. (laughs) I've always had a soft spot for Art Deco and Streamline Modern in particular. So in high school for my geometry project, I had a teacher who was pretty laid back in terms of what he would accept for school projects. And I literally just walked around my neighborhood or had my dad drive me to some buildings so I could take pictures of them that had certain geometrical qualities. Uh, and that counted as my geometry project. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty basic, but I was glad that I got to indulge that curiosity. Tell us about some of the masterpieces in LA that people could check out. Well, you know, there's landmarks like the Wiltern, obviously, that's a very beloved one. And then also on Wilshire, you know, what was the Bullock's Wilshire, now is Southwestern Law School. Art Deco takes a lot of different forms. It's, you know, never one thing. It's theaters, it's department stores, even the observatory you can argue that that has elements of Art Deco. I also have a weird thing where I love black and gold Art Deco buildings, and there's really only two, maybe three of them. There's one on Western and Beverly that I really love. And there's one that was a bank building, original security national bank building on Wilshire by La Brea at the beginning of the Miracle Mile. And that is now an office. There was a time when that was sort of a popular color scheme was just black with with the ornamental components painted gold. And for whatever reason, there weren't a lot of them and not many survived. So, But I really love those. It's interesting. Those are two like pretty busy intersections. So you could just drive by without even, you know, blinking an oh, eye or never, right, noticing. Sure. And I'm sort of wondering if any other buildings like that come to mind. I, I think about, it's a place I've eaten in many times. It used to be Campanile. Now it's Republique that used to be 
Charlie Chaplin's offices. They were originally built in 1929. If there are other things that might escape people's notice just as they're walking or driving around town that you would say, hey, (laughs) keep your eyes peeled. Well, if you're walking, of course, you're always going to notice more. And that's something I think is so important to do is to experience, especially streets that you're used to driving, just to just see what it's like to walk it and experience it from the pedestrian's view. And there's obviously you're going to see things that you'd never pick up on when you're driving by at 35 miles per hour. So I mentioned the Miracle Mile earlier. Obviously, that's a huge concentration of Art Deco. But there's this one building in particular that I love that used to be an Indian restaurant when I was a teenager. Originally, it was called the Dark Room and facade is shaped like a camera. So now that's part of the city's history of what's called programmatic architecture, where, you know, you'd have like, you know, Randy's Donuts and the restaurants that were shaped like tea kettles. Sure, they mm-hmm. advertised so, what they were. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that was also, you know, early roadside architecture because the idea was to get your attention when you're driving by. But that facade still exists. And I just love that it's still there after all these years, even though it has not been a camera shop in many, many decades. But I'm just very glad that whoever owns that building has been a good steward and has, you know, protected it. Gosh, another cool, and now it's actually quasi open to the public is, you know, the Angel City Brewery and Alameda Attraction. Mm -hmm. So that building was the Southern California headquarters of the John A. Roebling Sons Company, which manufactured cable and designed and built the Brooklyn Bridge. Brooklyn Bridge, huh? Yeah. And so inside of that building, there's some Batchelder tiles. Ernest Batchelder was famed tile designer and maker. Oh, um, from here in LA? Yeah, in Pasadena. Ah, okay. So a lot of homes have Batchelder fireplaces. Like my own house, we have a beautiful Batchelder fireplace. It's like my favorite thing about it, this place. Are those like uh, colorful glazed tiles? Well, because he did a certain method where he would paint the clay over it. They're not as saturated or colorful ah. as other tiles. They have a very sort of distinctive earthy brown matte finish. Anyway, so at the Roland Company, there's a series of Batchelder tiles that the, I think it was the employee's bought them in as like an homage to their employer, which is kind of hard to believe. These days, sure. Employee <laughs> loyalty. Yeah, and even then I thought employer worker relations were a little more tense, but I guess the employees there were very happy with their employers. So there's a series of tiles that also commemorate the accomplishments of the company. So they had a custom tile made of the Brooklyn Bridge. And then inside that building there's some other things that also reference the cables and also the structures that the company had a hand in creating. So that's inside and the brewery is most of the public spaces don't involve that, but I think you can ask them to see it or you can look through a window or something. Speaking (laughs) of breweries and tiles though, it makes me think of the Imperial Western Brewing Company down at Union Station. They have a lot of original tiles that were from that building that's just so lofty and beautiful. They did a great job of renovating that, keeping the original vibe of it. Yeah, that was one of the Harvey Room restaurants, which is part of the Union Pacific. Uh, was in all the main train stations on the West Coast. So, yeah, that's a great space. It's nice that that's finally gotten used again. I hope they can make it to the other side of this because Union Station is also one of my favorite places. Actually, mm-hmm. I got married there. Oh, cool. So anytime there's an adaptive reuse that gives a space new life, that introduces it to new audiences, that engages people with it, I think there's just like win-win there. Absolutely. So. And that's a prime example of it. Speaking of other places or buildings, I guess, that have been kind of kept in their original condition, I feel like L.A., we talk about a lot of Neutra and Lautner and things like that. What are some of your favorite L.A. architects that you feel like are worth seeking out or trying to peek at through 
gates or just gaze at when you can. Well, Paul Williams is, it feels like he's getting his due more than ever. So that's been great to see. He was the subject of a documentary earlier this year and a whole bunch of his archives that were believed to be lost were found. So now the Getty and USC School of Architecture are, I think they're like sharing the management of them. And so there's been a lot of programming around him and a new book by a photographer named uh, Jana Ireland that was published. And, you know, he's very significant because he was the first African-American architect admitted to the AIA and was orphaned Mm -hmm. at a young age. And he just has this incredible life story. He was so prolific and so skilled in just just about every style. Unfortunately, a lot of the homes have probably been demolished because they're in high-income areas where the land is valuable and people might want to do what they want to do with their land. But I think now there's more of an appreciation of him for sure. And I have a thing for Styles O'Clements, who was part of Morgan Walls and Clements. That was like one of the mega firms in LA in the 20s and the 30s. And he designed something like 50 buildings on Wilshire Boulevard alone. And the Adamson House in Malibu, which is one of my favorite spots here. And the Richfield Tower, which was sort of like the gold standard, so to speak, of black and gold deco, which I mentioned earlier, and that was demolished to make way for the Arco Towers. But he was part of a firm, but it was like, I don't know, he sort of had his own style and his own his own point of view in a way. So important and, and someone who really stands out. I was wondering if we could turn back to something we touched upon earlier, which is that although, as everyone knows, no one walks in L.A., if there are a Not couple... Not true. Yeah. <laughs> me too. I actually hardly ever take my car. Are there particular neighborhoods that you would suggest just parking, getting out of your car and having a stroll around that might be particularly, you know, eye-catching with the number of different uh, structures or styles or just sort of interesting things to look at that you could leave us with? Okay. Well, it, it can be kind of a tease because they're private properties, so you can't... Right. Just look. You can't don't climb over. Them. Yeah. <laughs> Stay on the public right-of-way. Don't do anything to make people uncomfortable. But, you know, there's the cluster of homes by Richard Neutra on the east side of the Silver Lake Reservoir by Neutra Place. And his own home, the BDL house, is there. So there's a grouping of homes that are pretty accessible. I mean, in terms of like, they're not behind huge hedges and stuff. You can actually see them from the street. And I think those homeowners take a lot of pride in being part of that community. And I'm sure they're used to architecture looky-loos coming by all the time. (laughs) Then also on the west side, there's Rustic Canyon, which is this magical area in Santa Monica Canyon. And... That has just an incredible concentration of modernist homes. It was Ray Cappy, who was one of the founders of SciArc. His own home was there. He designed a few other houses in the area. And then there's work by Craig Elwood and John Intenza of Art and Architecture magazine, you know, who founded the Case Study House program. His own home, designed by Harwell Hamilton Harris, is there. And it's just this incredible little pocket. And there's also some elaborate craftsman homes and you can tell it's a neighborhood that architects loved and still love working in because the siting is so unique and there's this rich history and culture there of supporting experimental architecture and design. Oh, well, hopefully next time we talk, we can do it while on a walk around that neighborhood. Thank you so much, Jessica. You've given us so many ideas for how to explore various parts of LA. Sure, thanks for having me. Eric, when you think about California wine, what comes to mind? Well, first I think about the Saturday Night Live sketch, The Californians, and all the delicious California Chardonnay that they drink on the shop. (laughs) Well, yes, the state is known for its Chardonnay and its traffic. 
after that, I tend to think about the major regions like Napa, Sonoma, Paso Robles, Santa Barbara, all the big names. That makes sense given what major producers those areas have become. But did you know that once upon a time, Los Angeles produced more wine than any other place in the entire country? I didn't until we started talking to our next guests, Amy Luftig Visti and Jasper Dixon, who founded the Angelino Wine Company in downtown Los Angeles back in 2015. As part of a growing urban winemaking industry here, they've not only produced some really intriguing small batch wines, but they've also discovered some fascinating tidbits about LA's surprisingly long history as a vino producing powerhouse. So Jasper and Amy, you guys have said that you wanted to bring a culture of winemaking back to LA and make a product of Los Angeles with your wines. Can you talk a little bit about how you decided to open a winery right here in downtown Los Angeles? Yeah, well, thank you for having us. I had been making wine at a friend's winery up north called DeRose Winery for a couple years when me and Amy got together and we decided we wanted to open a winery in LA. And as we were getting into the idea of it, we kept learning about this history of Los Angeles wine and winemaking, which is something you never hear about. And the more we kind of got into it, the more this awesome and amazing untold history of LA wine and the actual commercial wine industry in California starting in Los Angeles kind of revealed itself to us. And then it just became, well, we have to do this. You know, we have to kind of bring this this culture of winemaking, not to Los Angeles, but back to Los Angeles. Uh, so it was the rediscovery of the city's winemaking past that sort of cemented your resolve to actually start a winery right here in the middle of the city. For me, absolutely. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I would also add it was these long, really boring drives from our Los Angeles vineyards all the way up to Northern California to make our wine. As Jasper mentioned, he had been making wine for a long time under a different label, and I was getting into wine. The more I kind of learned about wine, the more I realized what I was truly passionate about was making wine and the production of wine. So I would go with Jasper to these vineyards that he was working with and would pick the fruit really early in the morning with him, and we would load the fruit up on the truck and drive, you know, six hours north to Hollister, California, and we would make make our wine at DeRose. And it was like the second or third year of doing that that I said, well, first of all, this is crazy. Like these drives are so boring. Mm -hmm. um, not that you're not great <laughs> company, Jasper, on these long drives. You guys just need the right podcast to listen to. <laughs> Good but, save, Amy. Good save. <laughs> but to Jasper's point, we're learning about how LA used to be the epicenter of winemaking in California. We were making 25 million bottles of wine a year in our heyday. We're picking fruit in Los Angeles and we're making it in Northern California. And we just said, this is crazy. We have to bring this movement back to, to LA and specifically downtown LA. It also got to a point for us too, where it was just way more interesting to work with vineyards here in Los Angeles. Because there aren't that many, there's only a little bit of fruit that's available. It's just a really challenging kind of environment or just not, I mean, I would say a different environment than what happens in the Central Coast in Northern California. And it just kind of had this uniqueness and Wild West aspect to it here in Southern California because there hadn't been a precedent for so, so long. I can appreciate that. It's like, not that it's too easy in those places that are really going full steam ahead with the wine industry, but it sounds like you all were up for a challenge. And I know that when you were looking for a space then in Los Angeles for Angelina Wine Company, you discovered that this sort of area of downtown actually used to be vineyards, right? So what else did you discover about the winemaking history of LA? And are there remnants of this industry that are still kind of visible to people walking around? Yeah, we learned that 
our winery and tasting room, which is located in the Mission Junction slash North Chinatown neighborhood of Los Angeles, is actually surrounded by streets that are named after some of the winemakers that used to be right in the same spot where our winery is now. So it's as close as our front door and some of this lost history. And which was total dumb luck. Yeah. <laughs> and what years was downtown LA really active in winemaking? Our heyday was really in sort of the 1850s to the 1880s was kind of where we were at our peak, but we were making wine in Los Angeles as early as the late 1700s. I think 1781 was when the vineyards were planted at the San Gabriel Mission. It's always uh -huh. the monks. They always bring those grapevines. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So we've been making wine since before the city was a city, really. And that's mm -hmm. before Napa, right? And Much before. Yeah. Yeah. So in 1859 in L.A., we were making 2 million bottles of wine a year for a town of 4,000 <laughs> wow. people. And that Bring was me back two to years. those days, Jasper. A lot of drunk people. <laughs> yeah. That's a good wine-to-person ratio, oh, man. That's yeah. what I'm all about. Like wine GDP. And that was two years before Napa's first commercial winery would open. Yeah, and I'll add to that by saying that we were growing very quickly, right? So in 1859, we were making about 2.5 million bottles of wine a year. In 1880, we were making 10 million bottles of wine a year. And in 1885, we were making 25 million bottles of wine a year. So that's just industrial level winemaking. And what is so exciting about it is at that time, I mean, yes, we were a city of lushes and drinkers even then, but we were exporting a lot of this wine. We were exporting it to San Francisco and New York and Boston and even, even Europe. Um, Europe was suffering through, you know, phylloxera and the, and the destruction of their vineyards. And we had this vision that we were going to be supplying wine to Europe. You know, it was just this huge, huge level of winemaking, so much so that when people would see California wine on a label, they knew it came from LA because we were making the wine too. Really interesting. I think you mentioned a book that you had read called City of Vines. Is that right? That was like sort of your source material into the discovery of the city's winemaking past. But if you want to tell us a little bit about that, that would be great. But I think you said that Angelina Wine Company was the first winery in the city to open in over a hundred years. So that's a pretty daunting challenge, I'd say. So most of the wineries were, you know, pre-prohibition and the only winery that survived through the Prohibition times was San Antonio Winery, which Later is still today. here today. Right. They ended up making a deal with the Catholic Church and, you know, once again, the monks <laughs> saving the day. And they were able to make wine for that and kind of keep their operations going through that time. And then since then, there, there were a few wineries that did try to open up in this area when Prohibition was repealed. But then the Great Depression was happening and it was just everything just kind of went out of business. And so nobody has opened a winery here in downtown since those times where all that was happening. And yeah, it was definitely a pretty steep learning curve as far as we would go into the various Department of Building and Safety downtown and talk to zoning people and nobody knew how to handle us. They would think we were a wine store or that we were, I don't know, this and that, but there was no precedent for it. One of the things that I think was really challenging and which was a, a bit of a hangover is the zoning regulations around wineries from prohibition times were still on the books, frankly. Well, I'd love to know what through lines you see between what you're doing today and the past of winemaking in L.A. We're actually doing a project with a group called the L.A. Vintners, who right now there is a few of us that are based here in the Los Angeles mm -hmm. area with the specific goal to work with Los Angeles county-grown fruit. 
And one of the projects that we're working on now that really does connect the present to the past is Amy had mentioned the mission San Gabriel, you know, going back to our friends, the monks here. So that mission still stands today. It's really beautiful to go and see it. And the San Gabriel Mission reached out to L.A. Vintners. They wanted to make cuttings and plant some of these cuttings of these super, super old vines that they have on the premises there. And we all got together and, and went to the mission and talked to them and said, yeah, we can totally make some cuttings and help you propagate this to other parts of the mission that you're working on. But in the interim, is anybody doing anything with any of this fruit here? Because they have these super old vines that are huge, that are the biggest vines I've ever seen in my life, like bigger than trees, and just that spread over this trellis through the whole mission. And they said, well, the birds just eat it. No, <laughs> they're not even making their own <laughs> Sacramento wine anymore. <laughs> so we thought, well, why don't we do something with that? And uh, do you guys mind if we take the fruit? And so now we're taking the grapes, and it's just a small amount. And we're like, we're going to do a little experiment. We're going to make Angelica from these vines, which is a very, very old school, probably the first real kind of California wine. There was a dessert wine believed to be named after the city of Los Angeles, Angelica. And it's a really sweet, flavorful, very, very beautiful wine. And what's so cool is that these vines are, we don't know exactly how old they are. The mission says that they're from the 1770s, but Long story short, they could be specifically one vine, the oldest vine in the state of California. Oh, wow. I think that is one of the things that you guys do that I think is so special is looking for those historical links. And obviously doing so is, is pretty much required to find vineyards closer into Los Angeles to work with and that there are still vineyards around here producing stuff. But it also leads you to make some really interesting wines with varieties that people might not be, first of all, even exist, but are around here. I think it's your Alonzo family vineyard white blend that has three grapes that I've never heard of before, Trecha Dura, Godello, and Loriero, which is just incredible. I'm sort of wondering if you can talk about some of the different places and people that you work with around the area and what's so special about the grapes that you get from them. Yeah, so really one of our favorite parts of doing this work is working with the people that mm -hmm. grow these grapes. I mean, we call them the winemakers, really, because, you know, it is very hard to make good wine from poorly grown grapes. And we work with predominantly two vineyards here in Los Angeles County, and they both are so beautifully cared for by the most wonderful people. We just love going to see them during harvest and after harvest. One of them is Juan Alonso. Uh, you mentioned the Alonso family vineyard, and we call Juan our crazy Spaniard. Um, <laughs> he's a character. He came here from Spain, you know, many decades ago. He settled in a small town in northeast LA County called Agua Dulce, which is out in kind of Santa Clarita area. He opened a beautiful French restaurant out there. Even though he's a Spaniard, he is a French-trained chef and is an amazing chef. And he brought all of these really unique and interesting and beautiful cuttings. You mentioned Trechadura, Godeo, and Lurero, which are grapes from the Galician area where he's from. We work with Albarino. He has Grenache. He has Tempranillo. And it, they just really grow beautifully here. Caino, just very, very unique grapes. And so we pretty much purchased the entire vineyard from him for our wines that come from the Alonso family vineyard. And then just last year, I believe, we started working 
with another vineyard called the Swayze Vineyard, spelled like Patrick Swayze, but no relation, I don't think. And he is up in the Antelope Valley, kind of near where the poppy reserves are. And he has about 10 acres up there, again, just meticulously cared for. Several of the winemakers from the LA Vintners get grapes from him. And we've asked Monty Swayze what he used to do with all of these grapes before we came on the scene. And he said he would feed the birds. So again, (laughs) I know total labor of love from him. I mean, these are just perfectly maintained, perfectly cared for vineyards. Zinfandel, he's got Semillon, Sauvignon Blanc. And my personal favorite from up there is a grape called Alicante Boucher, which in fact was very widely planted during Prohibition due to its easy transport. I was going to ask about that because I had seen that in one of your other releases. And, you know, for both of you, I guess, you know, Jasper, you've been making wine for a while already. Had you been aware of these vineyards just right here in your own backyard while you were making wine elsewhere? Or was it really the search to find locally grown fruit that led you to these discoveries? So I used to work at a local wine shop here in LA called Silver Lake Wine for about 10 years before we opened this winery. And there was actually a guy located in Ventura County called Ed Pagor, who was making wine from a grape called Tanat, which is definitely a lesser known grape. He was getting it from this, this vineyard outside of Agua Dulce. And I thought it was so crazy that somebody was growing this grape, especially at the time, here in California, let alone here in LA County, and it would made a great wine. And so that was always kind of in the back of my mind as a reason that, that okay, you know, maybe this, this could work. We can find good vineyards and make good wine here in LA County. And so that started with Juan's Vineyard what is so special beyond the sort of historical connections too about what you all are doing is introducing these lesser known wines to this audience downtown and people can come tasting again not during covid but once things are improved again and kind of discover all these things that you might not discover even if you go to the central coast or up to napa and sonoma because it is so unique and different from the chardonnay and the pinot noir and the cabernet sauvignon that we're used to hearing about so For the springtime, I'd love for you to tell us what releases you're planning on so we can come swing by and get them from you. We release new wines three times a year, but we we will definitely have new releases in the spring. I'm not sure that we've totally decided what those are going to be yet, but we will have our tasting room open as soon as we are allowed by the city and the county. You know, the tasting room is really fun. It's one of my favorite aspects of what we do. The tasting room is where, you know, people can come and in normal times they can sit down and we'll walk them through a flight of wines or have pour them a glass of wine. And we like to talk about the wines, right? We really put a lot of work into having this be like a not scary activity. So people think mm-hmm. wine tasting can be really stuffy and be really It is when you do it with and... me, Amy. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Don't go with Eric. Okay, well, okay. That's a... <laughs> That's okay too. But, you know, we really like to talk about where these grapes come from and how we make the wines. And we can show people the actual place and spaces where we make the the wine and explain how it's made. But the most fun part is, you know, just talking about Juan and and Monty Swayze and some of this lost history of LA winemaking. And my favorite part is when people go through the, the wines and they say, oh my God, like these are actually good. And like they're it shocked. It shouldn't right? be think, at this like, point, come on. <laughs> it's, no, you would be surprised because I think people think, oh my God, like an LA winery, you know, this wine's going to taste like tires or smog or like <laughs> no, it's whatever. So and, and so it's so delightful to have people come in and just be amazed that wine 
made in LA, made from LA grapes can be so delicious. And that was really an entree to talk about how we used to make so much wine and we used to be so famous for it. And so if this is airing in the spring, I am hopeful and optimistic that everyone can come see us and come try our wines. In the meantime, we are doing deliveries and pickups. Even if things are open up, it's a reminder that there are things in our own backyard to discover and enjoy, more importantly. So I'm looking forward to paying you guys a visit, no matter when it happens. We're looking forward to having you. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you so much. I think it's so incredible that you can have an excellent wine tasting in normal times or just pick up some hometown vintages from Angelina Wine Company right here in downtown Los Angeles. It makes me curious about what other small businesses are springing up down there, businesses that need more of our support than ever during these uncertain times. As both entrepreneurs and amateur historians, Amy and Jasper also have such a fascinating perspective on Los Angeles, both its complicated past as well as an eye on how the city is currently evolving. Indeed, speaking with them as well as Diana and Jessica proves just how many extraordinary layers of Los Angeles there are to uncover if you know where to look or at least where to ask. They've definitely inspired me to seek out more experiences right here in the City of Angels and not just because we're staying closer to home for the foreseeable future. For more information on the organizations and people featured in this episode, visit ConsciousTravelerPod.com and follow us on Instagram at ConsciousTravelerPod. And while you're giving us a like, be sure to tag us in your photos of LA architecture and the Hollywood sign. And if you're raising a glass of Angelina Wine Company Vino, do the same, and we'll be sure to cheers you virtually. We'd like to thank our friends at the Los Angeles Tourism and Convention Board who helped support this episode. This has been a tough year for the travel industry, but Los Angeles is ready for its comeback and for you to come back whenever you're ready. The perfect place to socially distance, LA is home to 75 miles of gorgeous Pacific coastline and more than 550 miles of public hiking paths, including the new 13-mile Park to Playa Trail, which runs from South Los Angeles to the ocean. Warm year-round weather also means you can enjoy meals al fresco while supporting local restaurants around town. Hotels and other businesses throughout the city are offering special LA Love Staycation deals through June to help both Angelinos and folks from farther afield make the most of their time in town. Check out discoverlosangeles.com for more ideas about what to do and where to stay on your next visit. We'd like to extend a special thanks to Jesse Holcomb, who took us on a tour of the Hollywood sign and provided some delightful commentary on its past and preservation efforts. We'd like to give special thanks to Matthew Carpenter, who composed the music you heard in this episode. 